Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is I, Sanderson, your host. And on the Lifefulness Podcast, we explore what it means to create a spiritual life. If you're totally secular, is it possible to have all the best bits of church in a way that is not religious, uh, but which religious people can take part in? And what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a full life? What can we learn from all of these traditions whilst making sure that we keep the science in? And so we interview awesome thinkers. And today we're chatting to John Yates because he has written this great book called Fractured, which is all about the divisions in our society. We're talking long division, we're talking short division, but mostly we're talking polarization. And uh, he is a very impressive guy. Check out what his publisher's got to say about him. John Yates is executive director of the Youth Endowment Fund, a £200 million charitable fund focused on integrating young people into society. Uh, He went to Oxford, he was a community worker, then joined McKinsey, and he's set up a load of charities and initiatives, and one in six Britons will have taken part in them in their lifetime. So he is great. He's really fun. And we got into uh, an awesome conversation with James being uh, delightfully contrary. So really hope that you like the conversation. Chat about it online. Give us a follow at Sanson Jones. Go and find the Lifefulness Project on Facebook. And if you love these conversations, go and check out our community page because we've got a discussion group which is based around this podcast and these ideas. So I'm going to get out the way and let you dive into John Yates and the fractures in our society. And so, uh, John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We're going to be discussing your book, which is great, Fractured. I held it up to a camera in an audio medium, so that's a good start, which is all about the division. And yet we started by trying to find the similarities between Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, how's it going, John? It's going all right. Yeah, it's going all right. I'm uh, all, all is all is pretty good with the world. Uh, I am. Um, I've had a cup of coffee. I'm ready uh, to chat. Uh, uh, no, life is uh, life. Life. Life is not too bad. Normally, our first question is, what is the religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? But I've a slightly different one for you, which is uh, why didn't you hire my wife when she went for an interview with the charity you run? I, I think she was too good. <laughs> I, I, I think the best thing you know as you know i've written a book about surrounding yourself with people you know from different different backgrounds and different experiences but she was have, i can't have a i can't have an organization just full of brilliant people i mean that's that's a very good way out of that one i she i told her i was gonna say that and she yeah. said no please do not ask him that question <laughs> at all so uh anyway she but now so we can right. <laughs> Now we can do our first normal question, which is what was the religious, spiritual or philosophical background to your childhood? My dad was a vicar going to uh, going to church. Uh, I still do go to church. I mean, I'd still call myself a Christian, though, though you know, we're talking about division. Like my, my parents were pretty liberal in their in their faith. Uh, my dad got in trouble in the local paper for, I think, 
being, I don't know how misquoted he was, but the headline basically was priest says that Old Testament is made up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably, you know, his PR advisor probably didn't quite uh, do their best job that day. My, um, uh, uh, the 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 youth group I went to as a kid was 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 pretty evangelical, and so I I had a sort of mix of uh, my family being sort of liberal. I mean, the thing is, the biggest splits are always the smallest differences. Like my, my so my family was sort of liberal Christians, and and a number of my friends were evangelical Christians. And what struck me in that distinction was, firstly, obviously, I loved them both very much, but I was struck like a how much they would easily think the other side, whoever the other side was, were sort of up evil or up to something. And secondly, they'd massively overestimate how organised the other side was. Like, <laughs> oh, the evangelicals are planning to, or the liberals are planning, they're probably behind what's going on at the BBC right now. And you just sort of think, have you met each other? You're the most disorganised people I know. There's no way, there's no way you're planning anything. Um, but uh, people just fall into these little pockets, don't they? But that, no, that was my, um, yeah, that was my upbringing. And uh, it's quite funny, I just the difference probably between if this podcast happened in the US and if it happened here, when you go, and I guess I uh, sort of would call myself a Christian today and I do go to church sort of very much back foot uh, in a way compared to probably some of uh, uh, the people you deal with in day-to-day uh, -day life, James, or suddenly when doing interfaith work, the look on James's face is suddenly pained unless you're praying. No, no, you're right. It's it's much more forceful presence in American culture is uh, religion than it is in the UK. Definitely true. And so I suppose as a vicar's son, you're perfectly placed to deal with this next question, which is uh, what would be like one thing, not a, like one particular thing that you think the, the world that we're living in at the moment could learn from religion? You'll know this, and I'm sure many of your listeners will, like the, the, where does the word religion come from? You know, it come, comes from the, the words to bind, you know, to bind together. And, and I think that the, the, the core thing that I think many of us who've grown up uh, either attending church or mosque or temple, um, whether we still do or not, there is something I think very valuable about having, and not, not, not. I'm not saying all places of worship do this perfectly, or you know, etc. I'm more than happy to critique, but of being brought together and thrown together with people who you didn't choose to spend time with. The the thing about being a, the son of a vicar is that everyone in the church knows who you are. Um, you have no idea who most of these people are, but everyone knows who you are. <laughs> Um, and um, that's wonderful, especially when you're a little kid and you get extra presents at Christmas. Um, but it, it's also wonderful that you, you get used to just talking to people from, you know, I, I grew up in Plymouth, which is a, a real, on the southwest, which is a real mix of rich and poor. And the church was a real mix. And, you know, you spent time visiting people's houses and you realised that you would, you know, there wasn't an average, there wasn't a normal. Everyone was in really different positions. And what might be sort of easily thrown away at the end of a meal with one family was exactly what was needed on the table desperately in another family. And I, I, I don't think there are that many spaces, unfortunately, nowadays where people get to see that that level of um, inequality or that level of difference in a society. James is a pope of a humanist congregation in St. Louis. Uh, and so how does that resonate with you, that sort of uh, that level of difference that you find in in your community? It's an interesting question because I certainly recognise the aspect of spending time around people you didn't necessarily consciously choose to hang around with like whenever you such join a, a diplomatic way of saying it. <laughs> it whenever you join a congregational community you take it all or you take none of it to a certain degree and that means that you probably are going to be 
thrown into relationships with people who you might not have encountered outside of that community. And at the same time, again, I'm coming at this from a US lens, it seems to me that those communities are major drivers of social division because many of them are very homogenous themselves. And they, they put people into actually tiny bubbles of people just like them. I mean, in a way, I think my congregation is quite like that, actually. We're in a very conservative state. We're a religious minority. And so part of the purpose of our community is to provide a haven for people who are not like the surrounding culture. And they come specifically to be among people who are like them. So I think it's not universally true that congregations do that, although I recognize that they can, and it, it can be a useful function. How's that for diplomatics? <laughs> We had slightly different takes on your book. Your book is all about the divisions in society and how to heal them. Whereas James thinks that uh, actually healing the divisions in society isn't really what's needed. What's needed is for the just to vanquish the unjust. So we're going to go and explore that. But before we get to that, which is, I think, a very fair, a generous uh, sort of description of your argument, James, tell us why you wrote this book, which I've absolutely loved and, you know, you know, a, a sort of brief summary, and then we're going to go and dive into it because it's it, it was uh, it's great. The core of the book it starts with the view that the the average Brit and most Americans are right about something. Eighty percent of Americans think that their country is mainly or entirely divided, and half of British people think it's more divided than it's ever been before. And I think they're broadly onto something. And I think we can see it most clearly in our friendship networks. So uh, half of graduates have no friends who don't have degrees. Uh, the majority of pensioners don't have any contact with people under the age of 35 unless it's their grandchildren. Um, a fifth of those who voted to uh, leave and a quarter of those who voted to remain don't have a single friend who voted the other way. Uh, and you get pretty much the same, slightly worse actually, if you look at the US um, uh, committed conservatives, committed liberals, so roughly half of those people don't have a friend who has the other point of view. Um, the um, same half of us don't have a single friend from a different ethnic background. And then the biggest divide, uh, at least in the UK, uh, is class, is income. So um, you know, a UK barrister would have to invite 100 people into their garden. You know, as we're recording that, that's three times the legal limit at the moment. Um, right, they have to break the law three times over, sneak those 70 people in um, to, before they invite somebody who they are vaguely in contact with who's unemployed. So we, we have, you know, quite a significantly fractured society. I, I think the second sort of core thing I was trying to sort of get to is people are increasingly going, well, why has this happened? Like, you know, what, what is going on? I sometimes describe the book as a non-fiction mystery book, which someone was mocking me for the other day as a ludicrous description of any book. But you know, what, what, what are the mysteries? The mysteries are, why has this happened? Why does it matter? And what do we do about it if we want to fix this? And, and maybe the place to tear it up is, because you, you, you've touched on it, Sanderson, a little bit, is um, I basically think that the average person has a much better sense of why this is happening than most commentators and people writing books. Um, and so you, you talk to most people about this, which obviously, you know, you do if you spend six years writing a book and, and people, um, people want to know what the hell you're doing. So and people will tend to eventually say, oh, come on, John, wasn't it always like this? And really, don't birds of a feather flock together? And and basically, those people are right. I mean, we, we, we have a natural small, small, don't, let's not overstate its, its weight. But we have a natural bias towards people who remind us of ourselves I, I in the book i call it people like me syndrome and there's some um, there's some brilliant examples of this there's these two schools um in oldham 
uh, just outside uh, or a little bit outside Manchester, um, where um, which one very near each other, very similar sizes, uh, very similar sort of mixed results. Uh, one called Count Hill, one called Breeze Hill. And they look almost identical, apart from uh, the, at the Count Hill School, it's very hard to find an Asian British child. And at Breeze Hill, it's very hard to find a white British child. And it was decided to merge the two schools together to create a new school. So they created a new school called Waterhead Academy. And they rather smartly decided to work with some uh, researchers, some psychologists, who um, decided to track how much the children mixed with each other. And they watched them in the lunch hall. Who do they choose to sit next to? Lunch hall is a good place because you can choose complete freedom who you sit by. And the first thing they found was that the white British kids and the Asian British kids didn't sit next to each other very much. I don't think that's that interesting because, you know, these kids have been educated at completely different schools for a number of years. It's probably quite normal. But they also tracked the hair colour of the kids. Um, and they tracked whether they wear glasses. Now, for those who are obviously listening, uh, yeah, I have ginger hair and I wear glasses. And it was just interesting to know ginger haired kids were more likely to sit next to ginger haired kids and kids with blonde hair more likely to sit next to kids with blonde hair and kids with glasses more likely to sit next to kids with glasses. I mean, part of me is just delighted that someone with glasses and ginger hair had some friends to sit next to. But, you know, <laughs> there, but there is, you know, there's some at the heart of that. And this is one of 39,000 studies done on this that come to the same conclusion. We have a bias towards people like us. And on one level, that's all right. Like, you know, I, I, I like watching the West Wing and I like talking about the England football team during Euro 2020. Lots of people hate both of those things. And it's totally reasonable. They shouldn't have to suffer me talking about the double pivot in the England team. Like, it's just not interesting. So on one level, it's perfectly good. And you mentioned, James, if you're in a minority surrounded by you know, a vast swarm of people, you need some space actually where you can be understood and uh, be with people like you. It's just when it gets to a certain level that's when bad stuff starts to happen. This concept of people like us, I really loved that framing. James, I would love it if you could just give, uh, you know, I summarized your argument in a sort of very broad brushstroke sort of way, but like you were saying that like, there's a huge amount of this conversation in the US about how we need to mix. And, you know, you've got a sort of point of view that maybe we don't. And so like, what is, you know, what's sort of your position on, uh, that. Well, first, I'm not sure that's exactly what you're arguing, John, but some of the discussions around this in the States bother me a bit. That, Firstly, we come to a lot of the same conclusions that your book comes to about society being probably more divided in specific ways than it has been, at least in recent decades. There's a lot of good evidence that, that that's the case, and a lot of it's in your book and that people have this preference to be around people like them. And I totally agree with that. I feel it in myself and I see it in my congregants and you know, I see that all the time. Um, and I agree that certain forms of social division are very harmful to societies in general. So for instance, the sort of class divisions that you're talking about, I think are very problematic. And I really like the way you talk about how they reduce people's political imagination. They reduce people's appreciation of the sorts of problems we have to solve in society. And, and I guess what is coming to mind to me when you're talking is that there's a distinction in my mind between divisions of society into communities based on non-chosen traits like social class, race, ethnic background, language spoken, gender identity, sexual orientation, and stuff like that, which I think we should do everything to bridge. And the political divisions, which stem from people's 
chosen, rationally selected political perspectives that are at least in principle changeable, right? You and persuadable. You can't persuade someone not to be gay, but you can persuade them not to be a Tory, right? So there's a difference in my mind between those types of difference. And one of the worries I have about the way this discussion is conducted is that it doesn't respect that difference. And that it suggests that there, there's something similar about not knowing anyone of a different social class or race to you than not knowing anyone who voted for Donald Trump or not knowing anyone who voted for Brexit. I think those are very different things. And if, you've, if you're someone like me who views voting for Donald Trump as a flatly immoral and unreasonable act, right, in itself, and an expression of a worldview that I find hateful and outrageous, I don't think it's a problem. The, the way to solve that is not for me to make friends with people who voted that way. I think it's for me to organize against that ideology and defeat it in the marketplace of ideas. But that's because the difference is an ideological one. It's not an identity. It's not a a built-in identity in the way that other differences are. So that's my worry is that that what these these narratives tend to do, at least in the mainstream liberal wing of American political discourse is paper over deep political differences that are actually important to surface. I'm glad we're fighting about racism in America because we're actually talking about racism, whereas the, before it, people just suffered it. And I'm glad we're talking about the major political rifts in the United States because it might lead to some needed political change, whereas the cozy consensus that existed before papered over the differences that, that existed to the detriment of the people at the bottom of the heap. So I, for me, I think sometimes polarization is actually a political good that should be fostered and leaned into rather than something to be scared of. Yeah, so so I, I I think there's a lot of common ground here. I mean, I I think there's a there's a I think there's a danger of like conflating a couple of different things. Get spending time with people doesn't mean um, uh, sort of bending your view. Uh, at least it doesn't to me. Um, you know, I, I I you know if I think about a, a very dear friendship to me um, of uh, let me take religion, which I think is something we choose. I mean, not totally, but it is something chosen. You know, if I think about my friendship uh, to Wad, who you know is someone I you know, kind of a very dear friend, who you can probably guess from his name is a Muslim. I'd be amazed if Jawad's faith has in any way been sort of uh, questioned by getting to know me. But I have obviously found it hugely beneficial, and I hope vice versa, um, to have a friend whose faith is very devout in a completely different way from mine. And so, so I, I would draw a distinction between sort of saying, oh, no, because this person I've got to know has a view that I disagree with I must bend my view I I think that is unhelpful and we should separate those two things I mean I, I I'm pro difficult conversations like you know I, I think we've got to have conflict um otherwise um I don't see how we make much progress in life I, I do think see first of all it depends what we're trying to achieve like you know take let's take Northern Ireland you know Northern Ireland clearly has got a history of being segregated into Catholic and Protestant if we're making a binary division between chosen views and unavoidable identities I guess we have to say Catholic and Protestant is a chosen position because you know by your definition you can change that position but the question is are we okay with Catholics and Protestants ever mixing I mean on one level yes uh, you know it's not like I wake up in the morning and go I want I want you all in a triangle formation holding hands with people with different religious views I you know it's not my job to come up with some beautiful way of how society should look and people should just do it but if I step back and say what sort of society do I think is beneficial for those humans 
um, I, I think one where Catholics and Protestants never meet um, is a really fragile, dangerous society for those humans. Considering most of us can't pay attention to politics all the time and don't want to, uh, demagogues can slip in really easily and tell horrible, hateful things, and people can die. Uh, and worse, you know, people can just be uh, can be abused and threatened and feel unsafe. Um, and I think it can be very, very bad also for social mobility. You know, why do Catholics suffer so much um, in Northern Ireland for a period of time? Um, partly it was prejudice, but partly it was a lack of connections and networks to those in power to get jobs. So, so I do think there's probably some of what you said that you, I'm not sure you fully would go all the way with yourself. Um, uh, I think you probably would want Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland to connect to each other. The thing which I, uh, which springs to mind there, and I think it's because a grandmother was a Tory councillor. My dad has done Tory-ish things, and I'm surrounded by like, you know, comedians and uh, social justice people who have got all of those never kissed a Tory, and I'm like, uh, well, you know, now you've got sort might have kissed someone who has uh, something sort of been spawned by one and, and certainly in views around brexit like that is there would be some people who think that that's a hateful ideology which is based on separation but a lot of the views of people who a lot of those views i think come from the separation and you see those things where uh, often it's in places where there is the most sort of separation into people like us and people like them. These views which are which go and sort of like go and really exacerbate the problems uh, around separation that they can go and foster and spread. And uh, if I go and think, for instance, on your Donald Trump analogy, there's a friend of mine's uh, a friend of mine's father I know who just looked at his. Uh, bank account and made a decision. He just voted for Donald Trump for tax purposes like that. You know, it's not a great moral reason to do something, but I think that, you know, the fact of having people together who being in play, more places where there would be people who were directly impacted by that vote would have decreased the chance that that vote would happen. And so I, I suppose my take on it is like trying to have more of these spaces where we come together does go and uh, increase the chance of sort of reducing those di uh, divisions that we've got. And th though there will be some people who are totally you know, out of it, like in the same way that like if someone's a, you know, part of a Nazi gang or something like that, you're going to, uh, there's not much of a conversation you can have, but like, I, I think there is something really valuable in, in having people together who are, who are di of different political opinions. It's, I don't think it's the most important thing in the world, but that, you know, we can have a conversation about that. And I might even push the point a bit, like, so let's say the Nazi gang. Do, do I think we should sit down and have a sort of reasoned debate as though their position is sort of reasonable? No. But what makes that Nazi more likely to commit an act of murder? It's being constantly surrounded by other Nazis. And like, there, there is a point at which we've got to say, well, I, do we want Nazis to be more or less likely to kill us? I, I would vote less. Um, and until they've actually tried to kill anyone, you can't lock them up. Uh, and I think that's probably a good thing. Um, so, well, how do you how do you de-radicalize people? Because that's what we're now I'm getting into. Well, the main way you de-radicalize people is get them to spend time with people who are not radicals. And so that does I, I just think we've got to sort of own some of the grayness here. Is like, do I want to hang out with a Nazi? No. <laughs> do I want Nazis to hang out with Nazis? No. <laughs> like <laughs> right. I mean, there are some well, who exactly do I want to hang out with the Nazis then to try and stop them just being dangerous Nazis? I guess it's non-Nazis. And so 
I don't know, James. I, I sort of think if 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 you're saying I I want to oppose Trump followers because their views are hateful, I I think you you're talking about trying to win an argument, you know, persuade. I think the best evidence is that actually, if if you let people live in complete bubbles, they're going to dig in. I think you're right about that, but I guess I think that there's another option, which is not to play but to organise. Right, and I think that these discussions often miss that when the dis when the distinctions are political, you don't have to persuade the other side always. You could just have to mobilise your side to win. And I think that a lot of energy is spent trying to persuade people who are fundamentally either unpersuadable or it's going to take so much energy to persuade such a small amount of people that you could have more effectively used that energy to mobilize your own people and i think that one of the big failures of progressive politics in the united states is that people have had this persuasion mindset for a long time we're going to convince people not to be like this. And that hasn't worked. I mean, it's led to the complete breakdown of US politics. And what actually needs to happen, I think now is for us to win this war. And then maybe in the aftermath of it, we can start persuading. But I, I'm, one of the reasons I worry about this narrative about polarization itself being a problem is that I feel like it's ahistorical. I mean, Sanderson and I were talking before we had the before you came on the call about, for instance, the Civil War, right? But what was the problem in the Civil War? Was it the polarization? Because that was way more polarized than, than we are now. No, it was slavery. It's like the injustice was the problem. And the polarization was necessary to overcome the injustice. And I think that's what we have now. I think we live in a world of such profound injustices that we need to defeat those injustices. And that might mean saying some views are not acceptable in polite society anymore. We did that to slavery. We might have to do that to transphobia and homophobia and other things to say, if you hold those views, you're going to be ostracized from society because they are inhumane. And I don't think anyone would be uncomfortable about doing that to Nazis and slave owners and things like that. I think we're just going through a social transition where we're updating our moral values. Some people are left out by that. They feel uncomfortable because they hold outdated and inhumane social values. And they're going to be left behind by society and hopefully will win. And we'll look back in a few decades and say that was an unfortunate period we went through, but it needed to happen for the good of the most marginalized in society. So, so I, I, I think you, I think it's interesting. Is I, I don't think there's much. I mean, on the on the actual what the book argues, I don't think there's actually much disagreement between us. Like, um, I, I think there may be a disagreement outside of what in the book. Like, so I mean, you're you're making to me a quite a tactical point because you're saying I think this is a more effective way of making change happen. You, you're not saying I think it's I must police the purity line and no people who agree with me should mix with people who disagree with me. No, no, I never would say that. Yeah. So you're saying I, I just think that if we want to win the election to make change occur, actually, there's a more efficient way to do certain things. My push really isn't about let's go around persuading people or let's go around um, mobilizing the base. My, my push is more what I would get the movement to focus on is trying to do something about the divisions in our society, because I think that rich and poor never meeting and old and young not mixing um uh, and race people from different races not me mixing and i would say also people not meeting people from different political backgrounds is really difficult for society and it has loads of negative consequences that 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 you care about when you were speaking it was i think you were talking about political change whereas this is a book about social change and i think division as a social problem is something which 
you know, you go into the thing, how it impacts our health, how it impacts social mobility, how it creates all those things, which then do have a sort of impact on politics. This question of like, should we spend our ad dollars in convincing this person in rural Kentucky to change their mind? Or should we go and come up with this message, which goes and gets out the people who are most affected? And that, and I think that's like, those are very different messages, but because the political, it so often subsumes all other conversations, we, we can end up stuck there. And so I guess what, this would be really great time to say like, what are the downsides of this fracture in society? You've mentioned health uh, there. Yeah, maybe you could just start on, uh, on the health side of things and just say like, what, you know, what are the problems that this causes? Yeah, thank you. So, so on health, so this is um, this is great example of a village um, uh, that I visit in the book uh, in in um, in Pennsylvania, uh, where the um, uh, the people who who, who live there um, are the most unhealthy people you've ever met. I mean, they they chain smoke cigars, um, they eat biscotti, they drink, they don't take exercise. You know, they just should die young. I mean, you know, <laughs> they're heroes to all of us, but they probably should die young. Um, and um, they, they, they become uh, a doctor who lives relatively nearby, becomes aware of the village and um, is informed that no one seems to die here very young. And he's sort of puzzled by it. And he looks into the data and realizes no one's had a heart attack in this village um, over the age of, uh, of, of 45 for years. And it's at the time when, uh, this, is, this is back in the 1960s, it's at the time uh, when uh, heart, dying of a heart disease was the number one killer of men in the United States. And so what the heck is going on in this village? And when he looks into it, what he finds is that you've got a very vibrant community. Uh, I, I use the term common life to describe a set of institutions that connect people together with people they didn't choose to spend time with. Because uh, common life sort of gets around our people like me syndrome because we're thrown into contact. And so you've got a vibrant set of clubs and societies. You've got people just knowing their neighbors. Um, you've got a community which actually is quite sharp on inequality of status. So if someone's sort of lauding their wealth, people sort of do actually use a bit of ostracism, do sort of say, well, hang on, that's not on because they want to have a sense of coming together. And at the heart of it also, there's a religious community. You know, people tend to go to the church. I mean, we don't know how religious people actually were by belief, but people had a tendency to meet at the church. Now, what's interesting is, is 30 years later, those, are, those community groups, those clubs and societies broadly have fallen away. And the heart death rate from heart attacks is the same as across the rest of America. So you can see just in that little story and what's probably going on is about anxiety and, 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 and fear and, you know, cortisol, you know, this fight or flight, uh, unbelievably helpful adaptation that we've got to get us out of fires um, is suddenly firing because we're around people who seem somewhat different from us and we're on, we're on edge. Um, and, you know, those of us who probably would, who are listening, maybe who define ourselves as progressives, you know, put yourself in a room with a, you know, let's say you accidentally walk into the wrong room and you're in the UKIP, uh, revival meeting you know that's the feeling I'm talking about if you can't imagine what I mean like it's that sort of oh my I've got to get out like and it's not just I probably I don't want to be here I've considered the options and or not I really would like to do something else it's ah or you know if you're with a bit sort of class conscious which most of us probably are and we suddenly walk in and everyone's wearing a three-piece suit and we're not and we've never been in such a situation we think everyone's you know looking down on us you know pick your own environment but cortisol kicks in and it gets us out of there. But if you're constantly feeling that, 
um, then this is why unequal societies are so bad for our health. You know, for constantly not mixing with people who seem other, um, but they're there, then we constantly are feeling anxious. And it's just very, it's just very bad for us. Hello and welcome to Mindfulness for Busy People. We're going to start by taking one deep breath together. And I'll see you here next week. And, but that, that study you mentioned is like, I loved it. And there was, uh, I used to do a, a joke about the Holt-Lundstad meta-analysis. What a laugh that was. And so this is an analysis of uh, what impact of your health on various things. And so you've got like smoking heavily, you've got not exercising, drinking heavily, and what is worse for your health and all of these that is uh, having low community and low social integration. And I'd go and sort of, uh, and I said, uh, well, uh, and uh, I, I've just been, I asked a scientist, and this doesn't mean that if you do smoke and drink heavily, you, you can get around it by just having loads of friends. And I found out by someone else that Axe also holds up with uh, Hasidic Jews. There's been studies on Hasidic Jews who are apparently, according to the report, not hugely sort of uh, active or physically fit, a tendency to like cream cakes and other unhealthy things. And yet, they do not die of heart attacks because they've got this community around them and and obviously then that goes into a sort of public health question how are you going to afford the nhs if people are dying because they're scared of everyone else around them and and i guess like what are like some of the other things which we're seeing from this sense of fracture to go actually this is a harm in and of itself yeah so i think that the, the next one to touch on is social mobility um, so most of us want to live in a society that's fair. Um, and I think most of our concepts of fairness have a sense of it shouldn't matter who you're born to and where you're born, you should have a crack at making the life you want to live. Um, and so we just focus on um, getting jobs and, you know, getting well paid jobs, which isn't what everyone wants to do. But most people think everyone should have an equal chance of getting them if they want them. Um, it, the truth is, and we, we, we know this so well that we even have a sort of saying, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. And, you know, 40% of jobs, give or take, come through word of mouth. Where we do have a divided society where some children just don't have the networks and the contacts. And, you know, there's an amazing piece of work done in the US where they divided America into, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of local geographic areas. And what they did in, is, is they got the, they, some, some incredibly nerdy person got the, um, got the tax records of everyone born in America between 1980 and 1982. Um, and then they got the tax records of their children. And so they were able to start to get a sense of like what, what happens, what gets passed on, what's the consequence. Absolutely amazing. It's probably the most authoritative study on the piece. And they ranked. By the way, I'm just going to have to jump in there. And when you said some incredibly nerdy person, both you and James lit up because you're absolutely getting a total kick from the thought of this research. You've lit, you've, you've lit up as you're talking about it, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel I should name drop Rad, Rad Chetty, who did the work, who is basically a hero of mine. Um, anyway, so Chetty and his friends, 
Chessie and Al, as academics would say, um, headed off and did this piece of research. And they, they, what they did, they, they sort of sort of ranking things, but they, they sort of came up, if you like, with a suspect board, like who, who might have done it, who might be causing weak social mobility. And they had some good suspects. So they had on the board, um, how about being charged lots of tuition to go to university? Or how about a lack of jobs? Or maybe a lack of manufacturing? Or maybe like a lack of investment in schools? Now, all four of those suspects ended up having done it less than a lack of mixing by race and income. So a lack of connection actually was worse for social mobility, for fairness, than even investing in schools. And that is kind of striking. Like considering I'm very pro investing in schools, I think it's a good idea. Now, if, I, I now, if I'm gonna be consistent, I've gotta be even more pro in trying to make sure that children from different backgrounds actually, actually mix and connect, connect together. And you see this, if we take a UK one, just to close it. So, close it off you know why do why is it true that a, a child who is black african by their ethnic background does better at school in the uk than a white uh, a white child but does worse in the job market and why is that happening it's not they've done well they've got good education results what is going wrong what's going wrong is partly prejudice uh, we know that to be the case there's clear proof of it but it's partly networks it's partly a lack of connections for those, uh, for those children so what do these connections look like? I'm totally convinced by this aspect of your analysis, by the way. I think, I think it's incredibly important and you, you talk about it extremely persuasively. So you say we need more mixing, more relationships across lines of difference. Where do you think those are gonna happen and what sort of relationships do we need? Yeah, so, so the research generally here is, is not close friendships that makes the difference to this particular thing. It, it, it's, it's what might refer to as weak ties. So, you know, a friend of a friend, um, you know, someone's, someone's uncle, um, or, you know, so a friend's uncle. You know, it is those, it's, it's the ability to have a conversation with someone who probably is a friend, and they say, oh, do you know who you should talk to? You should talk to this person. You know, I'm thinking I'd, I'd like to get a job. Um, I'd like to work in law. Okay. I think um, I think my um, my cousin's wife has a friend who's a lawyer. Do you want to talk to them? I don't know anything about it, but you can talk to them. It, it, the research generally shows it's those networks that start to have an have an impact. And so if you if you sort of add into the mix um, uh, something that's sometimes called assortative mating, which basically sounds like some extraordinary uh, sex position, but basically means. <laughs> Uh, basically means that we increasingly are likely to end up partnered with somebody um, who has got the same education level as us, which used not to be the case. Um, so um, it means that children, you've got one group of children whose uncles and aunts are all doing sort of quite well-paid jobs. And you've got one group of children whose uncles and aunts uh, are, are, are not. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't need to be close friendships. It, it's normally the weak ties that, that matter. And is that the case for all the benefits or do some of them require more deeper relationships with people? I imagine some of them do. Yeah, so, so for the social mobility, it's the weak ties that matter. When we look at things like democracy and health, and what tends to be going on, I mean, there's a few different things in the democracy stuff, but in the health stuff, it's the sense that these people are not threatening to me. And so um, the, the best way of pulling that off is a sense of being able to, I said, we have this anxiety that comes in, people like me syndrome. It's, it's not anti the person, it's a, it's a slight anxiety of the person. Now, um, what, what takes that anxiety away is believing the person actually is a bit like you. 
Now, the, the great news about people like me syndrome is it's super adaptable, who is perceived to be like me. Please, can you tell that story about the Man United fans and the Liverpool fans? That is, I read that and I was like, oh, that's going to go in something or I'm going to horribly mangle that in some talk at some later date uh, and confuse who actually wrote it, swap around the fans, <laughs> make it a bit more exaggerated. But like, let's go and get it from the source first. But I look forward to your version, which sounds like it's better, <laughs> better than the real thing. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of uh, research. I mean, so so what you've got is a um, uh, these researchers got a load of uh, Man United. They basically kettled together a load of Man United fans um, who did volunteer, and they they pulled them forward one by one, um, and they um, they welcomed them to the, the the piece of research, and they said, uh, "We understand you're a Man United fan. Um, is that right? Yes. Uh, who's your favourite Man United player?" What's your favourite Man United game? What do you love about being a Man United fan? Thank you very much. Then they asked the person to walk over to the place where the experiment was going to take place, which is about sort of 300 yards away. But being researchers, they'd obviously lied. And the, the experiment takes place while they're walking over to this building. Uh, and what happens is uh, another member of the research team comes running past and falls over. Now, the question is, are they going to help up? They're meant to be heading off to, a, to be somewhere. Are they going to kindly help the person up? But the, the sort of interesting addition is a third of the, the time, the person who falls over is wearing a Manchester United top. Uh, a third of the time, they're wearing a Liverpool top, who Man United fans sort of hate. And a third of the time, they're just wearing a red top. Now, now what's, what's interesting is, 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 first of all, people like me syndrome totally kicks in. So um, the, the volunteers are significantly more likely to help up the person wearing the Man United top than the others. But the really cool thing is they run the experiment again. Uh, the next day and they get another group of Man United fans and they, they, they set it up exactly the same apart from the conversation is different. Uh, I understand you're a football fan. Yes, that's right. Um, who's your favourite football player? What's the best football game you've ever seen? What do you like about football? Thank you very much. Exactly the same experiment, three, three potential fallers. And what they find is that the people are just as likely as before to help up the Man United fan, but now they're equally likely to help the Liverpool fan up and they don't really care about the person wearing the red top. Now, what it shows is like how malleable like there's people like me. But it's not that if you asked them afterwards and you said, are Liverpool fans, and is Liverpool Football Club and Man United Football Club the same club? They're not going to go, yes. <laughs> like It's not like they think they're identical. They still understand the difference, but their sense of who is like them has adjusted. And, and the best way to adjust those, uh, that sense is by getting people to spend time with each other. It, because we do have these natural sort of skills to connect with people. Uh, and that's why, you know, this lack of these connections is, um, is so troubling. Uh, your book is full of these uh, stories. And uh, there was, uh, I'm going to say, there was one of them. I was like, oh, God, uh, it's the two groups of boys who are sent to the woods and then they end up fighting each other. It's actually just a very interesting uh, thing the first time I read it. Uh, but it's used in all these books about difference. And so they get two groups of boys, they give them flags, and then they end up hating each other. And uh, the experiment has to be stopped. I don't want to run a social science experiment unless it is stopped. That's basically my aim, any social science experiment. I think that if I was a social scientist and also a social psychologist, like, and also when you go, you've just got to make like always, if you're going in for one of those experiments, watch out for what happens after you've registered. 
Like it's really on the way from registering to the other place. Someone like runs up and is like committing Harry Kiri, setting themselves on fire. There's like one box of sweets over there. It's always on the way. Anywho, that's a sort of by the by. And so that that part is uh, sort of like really well known. But then you sort of said that like once these guys were separated, these two groups of boys ended up hating each other the way they were brought back together is that they were on this campground and they that they still hated each other and then the person who was organizing the experiment went and actually blocked up their water yeah <laughs> i mean so you'd never get permission to repeat this experiment. it was like <laughs> totally it would fail all ethical tests but yeah he, he the, the the guy judd announces that they've run out of water and like they're in, they're in the middle of nowhere and it's probably quite hot i mean they're, they're in a they're in a very sort of extraordinary national park that used to be where uh, robbers used to hide uh, from the from the police i mean you know it's like you know this is not this is not like a beautiful lush place to be without any water and they they run out of water in theory now actually what's happened is the um, the people running the camp have just blocked up the taps in this massive tank at the top of a hill um but they say you know some it's a terrible disaster and the boys have no choice, really, but to work together to to fix it. Um, and then they they the, the people running the experiment basically just to try and get out of the hole they've dug, come up with a series of similar challenges. Oh, we're going to go camping. Oh, we've messed all the tent bags up. You're going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to sleep without any tents. Oh, we're going on a trip. Oh, the truck's broken down. Oh, you're going to have to. And they just concoct a series of challenges and by the end of the they have a few days left before they're meant to leave and they all hate each other um but by the end of the few days of challenges that the kids petition that they don't go back on separate buses that they go back on the same bus because they like each other um i mean it is it is in it is absolutely extraordinary what's it what's really interesting about that experiment is they it's the second time they ran it like so the first time they ran it it didn't work like, so what I mean is like the, the guys running it were trying to split the kids up and they were curious to know how they could do it. And they, the first time they ran it, they couldn't split them. And what the reason was, they'd let the children hang out at first. And so the children got to know each other, they formed friends. And then they tried to spread all these rumours and lies to split them and they couldn't split them. And I think that's quite interesting because it, it, it says something about like, where do our divisions come from? Like, it's easy to say, well, the divisions come from the person who's spreading all the lies and the rhetoric. But in that research, they tried to spread lies in the rhetoric. And because people knew each other, it didn't work. It wasn't until they first of all, they re-ran the experiment, they divided them first, and then they spread the lies, and the people believed them. And so I do think sometimes we look at our divisions, almost like the you know, chalk image of a dead body on the ground. We're divided. Something, who killed it? And then we look at you know, all this rhetoric coming from you know, pretty sort of appalling people often, and social media firing it all up. And we effectively arrest the nearest person to the crime. And we go, this is what schools did. And the argument really, the book is saying, ah, it's just not that simple. <laughs> like, why are we divided? It's because we've actually lost something important in our society. We've lost the common life, these little institutions that for our grandparents were clubs and societies, were people going to the sending their kids to the local school, were people going to the workplace, where people actually did have these connections. Was it perfect? No, but you had much a much more connected society. And it's the loss of that that's created the space that demagogues can step into and spread all this stuff.
That's why I'm really excited about the rise of China and its authoritarian tendencies, militancy, and uh, sort of total unreasonableness about sort of global free speech, because that is what's finally got the Republicans and Democrats to work together on a bill. And uh, a good old uh, enemy, which threatens our very existence, uh, and it can't just be climate change because it's uh, not a person enough, that's something to uh, really look forward to there. We're suddenly going to look around and go, you know what, guys, Let, let's go and stick together. Obviously being sarcastic, it's actually quite scary, but it is amazing that it has gone and made, like when you were talking about like we needed a problem, like it's got to be a certain type of problem, doesn't it? That, you know, people can realize, oh, we're going to do this together because society faces loads of problems. But if you still think that you're separate, then you're just going to solve it for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mentioned in the book, Karen Stenner, who's a fabulous writer, who did a piece of research on, uh, she identifies a group of Americans, but you find them in every country in the West, of people she calls authoritarians. Um, and what she means isn't that, she reckons it's about 30% of Americans. And, and she's not saying 30% of Americans are secretly running countries as authoritarians. Um, she means that like... But she means that, that one, roughly one in three Americans have a have a strong preference towards uh, people obeying rules as an absolute top priority and the importance of order. And that is their absolute number one concern. Um, and and you know, she 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 defines them by really one survey question. What's more important in children? Is it whether they obey their parents or is it whether they're creative? Um, and she says that tells you a heck of a lot about humans. Now, what's interesting is she finds that this group of authoritarians tend to be much more likely than other Americans to uh, have some sympathy uh, for, I mean, not lots, but some sympathy uh, for historic uh, things that the Nazis did um, compared to historic awful things that communists did. So they have like these, these slightly you know, authoritarian biases. They tend to be much more concerned about ethnic diversity. So she picks out this group and she does a really interesting experiment where she gets them to read newspapers. And they're all real newspapers, <laughs> and they read newspapers. And then she asks them their, their views on diversity. But she gets them half, to read. <laughs> <laughs> but for half the group, she slips a fake news story in. And the fake news story is that there have been uh, signs heard um, that have been confirmed now by NASA and released officially now of alien life. Um, and so half of the group read this seriously mocked up you know very you know credibly put together newspaper that seems to suggest that nasa have confirmed the existence of alien life and that what she finds is that when surveyed the authoritarians become very relaxed about ethnic diversity they have very little concern about it having read this news story now, it doesn't last as an effect right but it but it's it's really interesting like what's going on and it's your point actually although you know you said it as a joke like that there is something about like the sense of who is like us is very malleable and so suddenly when we're faced by aliens well who is like these people are definitely like me compared to aliens um so there is something about like firstly who do we come into contact with who do we bond with but secondly what stories do we tell but we've got to find a way to connect people together without a world war but you know or aliens invading I, I think, think some that's... sort of Truman Show thing with sort of like vast shadows moving across Earth uh, regularly, just uh, and every now and again, a big laser coming down. You're just recreating the story of Watchmen now, right? This is the whole idea <laughs> behind that comic book. The, so, John, I have a, a question for you then, because I really think that the research you're talking about is so profound in terms of showing how 
making different aspects of our identity salient to us in a particular moment can change who our in-groups and out-groups are very quickly, even if it's not a lasting phenomenon. That's fascinating, right? And we, you know, politicians mobilize that and lots of other leaders mobilize that all the time. The question in my mind is what story do we want to tell about what story do we have that everybody can be a part of, especially if that everybody includes people whose political beliefs are authoritarian and anti-diversity. And, and that, I think, has been a real challenge for progressive politicians, because I don't really I can't identify really anyone who's telling a story that's inclusive in that way and compelling um, and I'm not sure whether it's possible, you know, because any us has to have a defined edge to it. There has to be a them for, for there to be a us. So what, what sort of stories do you think we could tell as a society that would enable people to have a different sort of identity? Yeah, so there's some brilliant research on this. Um, I mean, I think more in commons research for those who are interested in this stuff, you can look it up is really good. And what it broadly says is that um, there's about 10% of the population uh, who uh, would define as progressives who find any sort of story that's based on this nation's story and this nation's greatness, really, they don't like it at all. Um, and there's probably about 10 to 15% of conservatives who any story that is about how we have more in common than you might think, they don't like it at all. But most people are in the middle. And, and so there is a story to be told that is about, look, this country has is not perfect, but it's done, but it's got great things about it. And we can all find things in it that we're proud of, and there is, and we can be better than we were in the past, and we can build on it. There is a sort of sort of vaguely softly, progressively patriotic story that can get to a lot of people. Uh, and I think we don't tell it very well often because the the polars tend to dominate the thinking. My sort of slight pushback is I'm not sure it makes that big a difference. Like I I I I think that these these national stories are useful and they're better to have them than not have them but I, i'm not sure that's where the heart of the thing is i mean I, I think you know come back to that experiment where they tried to divide those kids those kids didn't have a national a story it they weren't like going around with a flag um you know when they these are the children who met and got to know each other before they tried to divide them they weren't like we are the children on this camp they just got to know each other um and so i i i don't when you say an us has to have a border i think that's right but I think the picture isn't of like, if we think about Venn diagrams, it's not like there's one big circle, which is us. And then we've got to pick some people who are out of it. I think it's more like there's a load of overlapping, cross-cutting lots of circles of us. So I'm in one group because I'm a Christian and I go to church and I'll feel some sense of connection and solidarity in some way with a 65-year-old Black African British grandmother who goes to her Catholic church because I, there's something that in some way she's a person like me. Um, I'm also uh, someone who loves football and I'm really obsessively passionate about the England football team. And so someone who is 20 years younger than me and has maybe a few more tattoos than me and maybe a different level of education than me, I do feel a connection with that person because I also love the England football team. Like I do think actually what we've got to look for is these little cross-cutting comings together, um, which is, and I do think that's where all the, all the, all the real evidence is, you know, why, why do, you know, why do I go on about clubs and societies? You know, the, I'm not trying to suggest that like the fifties and the forties and the thirties were perfect. They definitely weren't. If you're an ethnic, man, if you're a British person from an ethnic minority, let alone an American. Um, but they, what they did do when, if you look at class, 
why were we able to do such powerful things in this country after 1945? You regard the NHS and the welfare state. We had just been through a set of experiences that threw us together intensely with people who were different from ourselves. And we lived at a time, I mean, the, the number of clubs and societies people went to so is double the likelihood than someone my age now. It was a significant difference. And the first clubs to start dying out were the ones that cut across class. So you, you can see if you track the membership of clubs, they all decline. But the ones that actually mix, working class and, 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 um, and, and middle class people together declined the fastest, which means that they really existed <laughs> and they were there. And I think they're just so important. So I do come back to, you've got, we've got to find a common life. You know, our schools used to be much less divided by income than they are now because we choose where we send our children to school. We shouldn't be surprised. People like me syndrome kicks in. We end up with particularly income segregated schools. And that's even before we get into private education. Um, and so, you know, we've got to find a way to connect people. The story is good, but it's the connections I think that are really important. John, when uh, your wife or partner, or you might not be with anyone in your life, asks you to uh, pass the salt, do you always say there's some very interesting research about that uh, <laughs> before uh, answering any question there is? Uh, because you suddenly, I mean, you, you, know, you know the research, that's what I'm, I'm going to say there. Well, I've done a randomized control trial of the <laughs> that my wife after the salt. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. And sometimes there's salt in there. Sometimes there isn't salt in there. In fact, you showed her a picture of salt uh, sort of two hours earlier and you showed her a picture of pepper on other days. Yeah. And but I get, going on to even less serious things, uh, I really did wish when James asked you if there was any answer, if you did, if you had pulled out the, yeah, it's people creating a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That would have been amazing. What a surprise. That would have been, that would have been a great tee up for this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Suckers. You didn't read the final chapter. <laughs> this is what it said. But yeah, I love that idea in your book of when you're sort of talking about people going uh, to, you know, football fans and how they, you know, when you're sort of supporting your team, then Liverpool are absolute scum. And then you go and you, you go to support England, Germany. And if anyone hits that person, that scum next to you, you are going to give your life up to, in, in case that happens. And like, we have got this ability to keep on finding these uh, larger ideas of us. And you know what, I, I, there is this thing of like, we need to have uh, a them for an us, but I mean, maybe that's only grammatically true. Like, you know, why, you know, why can't we, you know, these hypothetical aliens did it. Like we can create a sense of identity, which uh, everyone is included in. We've got so, we've got so much in common with every single other human who thinks they're a bit more rubbish than uh, their mate. I think that's right. And I think there's a danger, like with the them, them and us, Peter thinking is we're being too linguistic, like we're being too like, well, hang on, we're talking about us. Us is next to the word them. Therefore, this is the way to... I just don't think that's how humans really work. I, I think our humans work is they're naturally quite good at connecting with people. Like we, we are really quite good at it. Like we, 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 we tend to laugh at jokes. Like, why do we laugh? Like you'll, you'll know this Anderson, I suspect more than anyone, but like we, we laugh because um, we're in a group. Like you laugh as a social response. Like you don't, you don't laugh. It's not like a funny bone hit. It's not like I got hit there and my leg moves. You said a funny, I laugh. That's not how it works. That's why, that's why the, the hardest 
I, I, you know, I had spent a bit of time as a completely failed stand-up back in my in my in my early days, and um, you know, it, the hardest gig to play is the small crowd. You know, people laugh more likely in a group. You know, we do have these little adaptations that actually makes it empathy is a is another one. Like we are remarkably able to empathise with people um, uh, when we meet them, when we when we listen to their stories. So so we do have these adaptations. The odd thing is we've got this other adaptation which is really old, which is people like me syndrome. Super useful when you're living in little tribes on the savannah and you don't and people you don't know are quite unusual. Not very useful today. And actually, we want to connect. But we don't, and we're afraid. And actually, it's much more like how do you how do you move the brain around a bit so we're not afraid of people? That is, we get into linguistics of them and us, but that's actually what's going on. Um, and, and connection is the is the key to solving that. And I think we're also bad at recognizing that connecting with someone and finding a shared humanity doesn't mean we think they're a good person <laughs> or that their views are good. It just means that we recognize they're also human beings who suffer pain and bleed and cry sometimes and laugh well look we're gonna end it there what that makes me want to do is go and uh, sing a song with uh, everyone in the world and to uh, go you speak about the Hansa tribe going and dancing under the moonlight let's find a big place we can all dance in the moonlight together until uh, not necessarily too dancing in the moonlight uh, until we monkey around with our brains enough where can we find your uh, book John and where can we find you online uh, that's very kind. So Fractured uh, is available uh, in all good bookshops and probably some bad ones. Uh, so feel free to you know Google search it. Uh, Fractured uh, by John Yates, you'll find it quite easily. I loved that chat with John. He uh, took all of uh, my jokes about uh, uh, not hiring uh, Imogen in very good grace and really rolled with those P's very well. And... Uh, Afterwards, I'm going to try to think of somewhere that we can share it. The convo sort of carried on, but I don't want to make this the longest podcast in the world. So I'm going to see if there's a place that we can put it out because it, it got pretty tasty again. Uh, but one thing that we did do is I remembered I'd ask a listener if uh, listeners if they want to have a question. And Phil Santos did have a question for John. And I forgot by the end of the podcast, but then I remembered. So, Phil, this is John's answer. Uh, the question was, where are the most promising containers for people with radically different beliefs to come together? So um, uh, uh, anywhere where we're not choosing who we're spending time with, um, where there's some sort of equality of status. So like you don't choose who you're mixing with in a prison, but you shouldn't expect prison guards and prisoners to form a sense of connection with each other. Right. So there has to be some sort of equality of status. Um, that's why uniforms were like quite powerful in like scout groups. Like you couldn't tell so easily who could afford good clothes and who couldn't if everyone's just given the same uniform. Um, and um, either some sort of intensity, some sort of intense shared experience, something that raises the heart rate a little bit. Uh, it could be a, doing a presentation, getting out, doing something kind for someone else that you're a bit nervous about meeting, uh, doing playing some sport, something challenging, or something bizarrely, something that has some routine to it. Um, that's why I think breaking bread and eating together is 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 effective. Um, uh, there's a great ex there's a great uh, example of some children uh, who were got to string beads together, and one group of the children could just put the beads on the string any way they liked and just chat to each other. And the other group had to follow a routine. They had to put the heart one on and then clap, and the star one on and then touch their forehead. And they found after an hour of spending time together 
the, the guys who followed the really random routine were really connected to their group and didn't like the idea of joining the other group. Um, and the guys who just played about had a nice time but didn't feel that. There's something weird about human nature and routine. Um, so um, anything that can do those sort of things. Uh, and you can probably, if you think about it, create that in most places. Uh, that's it and uh, yeah that's the end of the pod thanks so much for listening I really hope that this in some small way uh, went and helped you went and gave you a new idea a little piece of understanding a juicy intellectual morsel to snack on or a seed for your soul uh, whatever it was that you might have wanted or maybe not even wanted maybe it's what you needed uh, my hope is always that there's something in this podcast for you uh, yeah thanks so much uh, like I said go and uh, give us a follow on the Lifefulness Project and at Sanderson Jones in most places if you've got any questions get in touch and uh, yeah have a wonderful wonderful day night afternoon morning or any stretch of time which suits you at this moment Thanks to James, thanks to John Yates, thanks to Mavs, the awesome producer, and thanks to Roman Rapak and Miro Schott for the music that you are listening to right now.